So I sent out an email uh, to announce today that we would be in person and also that um, we would start our talks on Sangha precept talks today. And I included the words of Bernie Glassman, my first teacher, in that email about remembering that the precepts are our blood and marrow in our Zen practice. It's implicit in every aspect of our practice, and we do it, as you've heard me say often, at the beginning of practice, in the middle of practice, and at the end of practice. So, Bernie's tradition, uh, when you read uh, his book, The Infinite Circle, which we will read later in this year, he talks about that you only really did the precepts at the end of practice. Um, by the time I began to study with him, that changed, and he decided, no, that we should do it at the beginning as well. That it was a way to enter in repeatedly over and over again. And I think all of us in our little precept group have discovered that for ourselves each time we look at a precept. Then, you know, we've been reading several of these books simultaneously. Um, people have their favorites. Um, uh, Mary Likes the Mind of Clover by Aiken Roshi. Uh, others have loved the Diane Rosetta book, and some have loved Norman's book, Taking Our Places. I wanted to read just a couple of quotes from Diane Rosetta. She's a teacher in the East Bay who has a very different take uh, in her interpretation. And it's great to read these different interpretations because they do, in fact, excite and make us curious uh, how different people receive them. She says that our work with precepts turns us in the wheel of life, and we turn it. It also turns like a wheel, the Dharma wheel, and as the beacon light of awareness lights up our actions, we see clearly how we swing into our habitual awareness, our reactions of self-centered thinking. And as the power and intelligence of real awareness of waking up does its work, we begin to really witness, feel, experience our thoughts, sensations, and then they begin to dismantle and dissolve. And I think we all know that momentarily we come to things and we have these little awakenings. It's almost like seeing the light in the church window, how it dissolves, gets, gets darker, and then it brightens again. And that's the way it really feels on this path. We're given these moments to awaken and it's not about that we are unenlightened. It's about we're enlightened all the time. But we just have to wake up. So the effort of doing the precept study is continuously wake up. To do what it needs to be bright, sharp, 
to begin to take responsibility for ourselves in new ways. To know that our life is our life and that we don't have to change. We are enlightened as we are. You can see perhaps the light has started to get brighter here as I'm saying this. We are enlightened just as we are. And as Suzuki Roshi says, and we love to say, we can use a little improvement. Hmm. At times we feel, oh no, this will never come again. I will never wake up again. I will be asleep. I will be suffering. Well, this may be true, but I challenge you to go deeper, to look at the precepts. And as you do, to take them in and begin to see that this is not really true. That what is true is that you are standing in your own awakening. Diane Rosetto also says that it gives us a chance as we study the precept to come out of our hiding. Our hiding, which is a habit where we slink away and we say, no, no, it's too hard. I'm not going to do it. Can't do it. Well, we know that during this pandemic, we have seen many examples of people who have had terrible, awful things happening to them. And somehow they have found in their inner life a way to connect and be aware of all beings. Our precepts continuously point to us looking into the triple treasure, Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, to feel our life, to invest in our life, to take responsibility. So for the past 10 months, a group of us have been meeting. We've been studying and discussing. We have been listening to each other's lives as we also have been sewing Buddha's robe. We've had a wonderful sewing teacher, Stephanie Blank, who's at Green Gulch. And she will come and speak with us at the very end of these precepts talks in May. And in the meantime now, we're going to start listening to each other so you can see and I think feel very supportive and proud of each of our persons. They've come out of their hiding this year. <laughs> um, sometimes um, reluctantly, but they have. Um, and they've taken responsibility in their relationships with each other, as well as with themselves. And they're doing this for all of us. They're not doing it for themselves. They're doing it to take the Bodhisattva vows, to save all beings, us. And I really want us to thank them and to give our gratitude for how much they have put into this time and will continue to put in as they take greater responsibility in their practice with this Sangha and beyond this Sangha.
we have an opportunity to feel their blood and their marrow, an opportunity to welcome them out of hiding into a much bigger, expansive experience of their life and our life because they've taken this on. So I'd like to start and introduce Marty, who is our brave first person. <laughs> and her. And then let's see. And then we'll all here if you'll give us a moment so we can gather here, Marty. Uh, all right, let's see. Marty, can you say something so I can spotlight you? Yes, reflections on the first precept. Great, hold on just a sec. Thank you, Mart. Here's your audience here. <laughs> let's thank, thank you all. Yes, yeah. do the before lecture chant. Okay. <laughs> An unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect karma is rarely happy to see and listen to, to remember and accept. I vow to taste the truth of the Tagata's words. Good. Well, I'm glad I just was asking if everybody could hear me. I guess I muted for the before lecture chant. And I'm hoping that my parrot will be happy <laughs> and quiet during this time. Uh, I started with a couple of different looks at the first precept. From Upaya, a follower, a follower of the way does not harm. We are not separate from all that is, and we will live in harmony with all being. Uh, from Damia Burke, as quoted by James Ford, do not kill, cultivate and encourage life. Do not see anything as separate from yourself. See and honor every being and thing as a manifestation of Buddha nature. And from Norman Fisher in Everyday Zen, a follower of the way cultivates and encourages life does not take life. Make it personal, said John, when she advised us on preparing these talks. Yet the personal also seems overwhelmed by events. So I may meander back and forth here. I have been trying to remember first lessons on killing. My mom killed the chickens we ate on the farm in Livermore when I was a child. I remember being fascinated. She showed me the anatomy and how it resembled our own hearts and livers. And as a child, I loved seeing the clusters of unlaid tiny eggs. I didn't think about killing. And I loved both the live chickens and eating chicken. One of my father's friends and mine, Tom Hicks, was raised by his grandfather on a Tennessee farm and was probably a child in the 20s and 30s. His grandfather's philosophy was, if you kill it, you eat it. 
and applied to bugs as well as birds and other creatures. Tom and his brothers learned by eating things they randomly killed that life was precious and not just for amusement. No killing except for survival is how I understood this teaching, hearing it as a child. How do we define survival? What killing can be justified? I do not remember killing ants or mosquitoes as a child, but surely if one was on me, I slapped at it or brushed it off. I tried very hard not to be afraid of or react to spiders, but if something is crawling on me that I can't see, fear still takes over and I brush something off and may hurt it or kill it before I'm even conscious of what I'm doing. Not to mention that as a biology student, I killed and dissected creatures. And while I marveled at the organization of and miracle of life, and how much I am similar to a worm or a slug, I was also proud of my ability to carefully dissect out the tiny organs of the snail. I cared for the rats and mice as part of my student job, and I could not bring myself to kill them, but I did not even imagine telling other people not to kill them as part of our studies. Bringing attention to what I am doing is a must for living by this principle in everyday life. I want to honor all life, and yet I question my motives. Can I live with a rat that is in my ceiling, gnawing on the fabric of the house? No, probably not. Um, although maybe I could catch it in the live trap. Or the skunk that has her babies in the crawl space under the floor of the cabin. Yes, I did do that, but boy, was I sorry when she perfumed our house one night. And for weeks, my friends didn't really want to come near me because all of my clothes were impermeated. What about the creatures I cannot see and do not hear? The cry of the carrot when it's harvested. Or the tidal creature in the sand that might be crushed under my weight as I walk on the shore. Every action I take has consequences for living beings. The trees whose wood was harvested for the house I helped build, the chair I sit in today, the silk I might line the envelope of a rakasu with. And thank you to Stephanie for reminding us of this class as we sewed. Um, every action we take has consequences for living beings. And the creatures that share my body, that's my, in quotes, the mitochondria in my cells that are little autonomous beings with their own DNA that share the energy they create with me, the uncountable bacteria and viruses who coexist mostly on my skin and in my gut and in the fluids of my body. When I make a decision to use herbs or antibiotics, I'm killing some parts of myself because where do I start or end? I don't have an answer. In day-to-day -day living, I cannot escape my sense of being a separate being moving through this world, even as I try to hold the understanding that this is an illusion and I am a temporary manifestation of life in its current form. As a part of the web and as an effector on the web, how do I understand and open myself to the cries of the world? How do I live and act ethically and lovingly 
and yet know I'm also responsible as a human being for the sufferings of others. That the suffering and thefts from others provides my comfortable daily life. That I am part of the military industrial complex, even if I never buy another new garment or put another gallon of gas in a car. That in my name, proxy wars have been fought in Vietnam, in the larger Indochina, in Afghanistan, and in the so-called banana republics. When I was a child, the French were realizing in the 1950s that their presence in Vietnam was unsustainable. And as the French forces withdrew from many years of occupation, American forces began to move in. The Chinese were pressuring the Vietnamese from the north. Here in the US, the civil rights movement was also beginning to have real traction from, with many brave people putting themselves out in the face of danger. How could I respond and act seeing that America, like all nation states, was built on war and aggression and taking or having access to resources from others and that none of us have clean hands? My mother wouldn't let me join the buses of freedom fighters and voting registration folks in 1964. I was 14. She steered me instead into working with others locally and in getting out the vote in the suburb of LA and in working on campaigns for fair housing. And most importantly, in learning how to speak and listen to people who don't see the world as I do and haven't had the same experiences. And if I'm honest, I do think about killing others. I wonder if I should buy a gun and learn to use it to defend myself in the coming civil war against people in my own country who don't believe and live as I do and want to control how I live and worship and deny me and others a vote and maybe even our lives. And it is tempting to think that if some politician I don't like and do fear were killed, that life might be better. Even though I know that's not even remotely true, I don't purchase that gun, but I do have those thoughts. And part of what I want to defend is my and others' right to kill, a right to say when and how I am ready to bring new life into this world. And I do also worry about humans, including me personally, overloading our planet with our numbers and our needs at the expense of clean water and food and peace for all of the world's beings. And when someone passes me on safely on the road, and I fear for my life or the life of others, I first say to myself, well, if you have an accident, and part of me wishes you would, I won't stop to help. Or I'll tell on you, tell the cop how fast and recklessly you were driving, or I'll put a note on your car when I see it parked in front of the post office. Before I come back to both the fact that I've done lots of stupid things in my life, and some of them while driving, how can I honestly aspire to be a bodhisattva and to be here for all beings? First, I look to those who are treading this path. During the Vietnam War, I struggled to understand the meaning and sacrifice of those Buddhist monks who lit themselves on fire to bring us a message about war and killing and suffering. Is it possible to live fully honoring the principle of not killing, not harming others? Yes, and it helps to know about good people. 
I first heard about Thich Nhat Hanh when I was volunteering in a small press in Santa Barbara in the early 1970s, and I had the honor of hand sewing books of his poems. He was already well known in the US, although not to me. And although he had contracts with a large press in the US, he also took the time to encourage the work of small presses like the Unicorn Press. And his steadfast and clear-eyed vision for working for peace and living for peace is possibility. Over the years, I've returned again and again to Thich Nhat Hanh's words and examples to try to align myself with hope and life rather than anger despair and aversion. How can I not kill spirit in others? As I stumbled and grew through my teens and twenties and beyond, looking for right livelihood and ways of being others without causing harm, I met with many sources of resistance in myself and still do, to be honest. I said to my friend studying nonviolent communication, I couldn't even imagine not telling my truths even if they were harsh or hurtful. I imagined that I was protecting children by calling out their parents or by calling out people I worked with for their unkindness to patients, but in an unkind way to myself, by myself. Yet little by little, I have been able to hang on to the idea that it is better to support and love both others and myself when we or I fall short. And I was happy to really see this work when I was on a hotline for women to call when they were overwhelmed and trying not to hit their kids. To be a person that could just be there to listen and hear and not be condemning. So not killing my own spirit. <laughs> Um, taking responsibility for my own actions, being honest about my own negative thoughts, my projection of others as bad and myself as good, and owning my own mix of anger and hope is an ongoing process. Um, I sat with Sonoma Mountain Zen Center for a little while when I moved up to Northern California. And when I moved to West Marin to help start the Point Reyes Clinic, I told myself, it was too far to go to Sonoma Mountain or to the SSN Center to study. And Green Gulch, that was just for advanced practitioners of Zen. <laughs> um, and uh, I wasn't sure if I was even a fully committed beginner. <laughs> so, but I did have a friend who above his writing desk had written the three phrases no judgment, no comparisons, no blame. And I kind of took that as my mantra and, and still and trying to just keep that, keep reminding myself. So I've practiced sitting at home for many years with the help of Sylvia Bornstein's books and attending classes and sittings at Spirit Rock. But the missing piece for me was community. The sense of belonging that being part of the Heart of Compassion Sangha has brought me a really wonderful gift. I felt welcome with open arms from the first day I entered the freezing cold church in Inverness. <laughs> the room was tiny, 
And the 14 of us were very crowded in there and doing walking meditation was an exercise in breathing and moving with others. That might've been my first more than momentary effort to really stay in the moment. What a gift to be welcomed when it appeared there was no room. And how easy, much easier it is to see everyone's beauty and courage in following this path, each in our own way and bringing our own light on the subject. And through Heart of Compassion to meet and sit with some of the wonderful people at Everyday Zen at the East Bay Meditation Center while learning how to be actively anti-racist and with Breadloaf Mountain Zen Center in studying with Jean and Joshua last summer. I am learning that it over and over again to trust that it is okay to be present, to be honest as a witness and to be a full participant instead of hanging back and killing my own spirit through fears and doubt. So meta is the key that I return to over and over again when I am in despair and angry, see unkindness or injustice, moving back from the illusion that I can control anything, move towards remembering and embodying love in the moment. I'm a little embarrassed by how short and basic my meta is, but it is a refuge. May you all be happy healthy, peaceful, and wise. May I be happy, healthy, peaceful, and wise. May all beings be happy, healthy, peaceful, and wise. Thank you. And my question for you to ponder and discuss with each other is how are you keeping the spirit of not killing, not harming, alive in your life and practice in these very troubling times? What is helping you? Thank you, Marty. Thank you so much.